Let's go to the book of Acts tonight. We are continuing to see what it looks like to be a church in action. We're still in chapter 2 and on the day of Pentecost. Remember that this early church was obedient to Christ's word to tarry in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. They're assembled together obediently. They're in one place, one accord. And suddenly they were filled with the Holy Ghost. This caused them to speak effectively in other languages. They spoke of the wonderful works of God. Because these were, because these appeared to be uneducated Galileans, people began to marvel. <laughs> How are these guys being able to speak in these languages? I can't even say that right in proper English. How are these guys able to speak our language with, in our dialect even with such perfection and so effectively? And the devout Jews who, who were highly educated men, they're listening to this and watching this and <clears throat> they're beginning to marvel and they were confounded, the Bible says. They were amazed. Some were asking, what meaneth this? Others didn't know what to say, so they just mocked them. You guys are full of new wine. You guys are drunk. Well, Peter stands up among all of them, and he begins to explain what is taking place on the day of Pentecost. Peter begins by explaining that what they're all witnessing is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Or at least in part, God had promised a day was coming when He was going to pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. And God said He would do so beginning in the last days. Well, that's been going on now for nearly 2,000 years. You say, well, God sure does have a weird sense of time. Well, maybe, I don't know. Um, but 2,000 years to a God who's in the beginning and in the end, it's not time at all. <laughs> Amen. Um, he's already there. And, and so a day is as a 1,000 years, 1,000 years is a day. And um, it's been going on for 2,000 years. Seems like a long time to us. And, and God said He would continue to pour out His Spirit until the day of the Lord, which we are awaiting. That's the time of His wrath. And, and during that window of time, the, the last days to the day of the Lord, uh, the Bible says there in verse 21, I believe it was, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And last week we saw in Peter's message how he began to explain the way you're saved is through Jesus Christ. Amen. He established the life and work of Christ. And then after that, he established the sufferings and death of Christ. And then once that was done, he established Christ's resurrection and victory. And the emphasis of the message was this. It's not enough for us to tell someone Christ lived, but we have to explain why Christ came to the earth to live. Uh, it isn't enough to say they need Christ, but we need to explain why somebody needs Christ. It isn't enough to just tell someone Christ died for them, but we need to explain why Christ died for them. In other words, we need to be thorough in our gospel presentation, especially even more so in the day in which we live. There, there is so much ignorance that abounds because we have generations now that have never seen a word of God, never been in a church. The only time they've heard God is when His name is being taken in vain. Well, that brings us to where we left off in Peter's message here, but we're going to go back and read all of this for context. Verse 14, 
But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. These, for these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Oh, man. Sherry Edwards, where are you at? Prophecy. Sorry. Ah. C-Y-S-C. See it. Okay, she had me straightened out last week. And once a week passes, that's it, Sherry. So, um, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens will I pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always, I, saw, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of, spake of the resurrection of Christ, and his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Amen and amen. So before we pick this back up in verse 25, Remember in verse 24, Peter stated how God raised Jesus up from the grave because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. I quickly gave you three reasons why that was the case, why Christ could not stay dead. One, it was naturally impossible because Christ is God. He is life and he couldn't stay dead by nature. He's part of the Godhead. Number two, it was legally impossible for Christ to stay dead because God's justice was fully satisfied by Christ. And once the debt's paid, there's freedom. The third thing we were quickly touching on was this. It was scripturally impossible for Christ to stay dead because God's Word says 
that he would rise again. And that perhaps is the most important reason because it's the reason that's going to follow, but also we wouldn't have the other two reasons if we didn't have the Word of God to draw from in the first place. So the Word of God is the emphasis here, and I want you to understand that as we're going into this message. As Peter continues his message, he continues to cite Scripture. He says, It was not possible for Christ to be holden of death, and he'll go on, we'll see tonight, he goes on to use the Word of God as his proof for why Christ could not stay dead. And I want to pause here for just a moment, and, and I want to just give you a side sermon within the sermon, and that is the, the Word of God is to be our authority. Period. The Word of God. And when we get away from that, we're heading for trouble. It's, it's pitiful to watch in our day the departure by churches from God's Word. In fact, it's quite sickening to be a church, so-called, and then not stand on the inerrancy of God's Word. Paul told Titus in Titus 1, 9-11, that when it came to ordaining elders or pastors... One of the qualifications is he must be one who is holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. And I try really hard in preaching to not rail against somebody. I don't like churches that have built themselves up by tearing others down. I try my best not to go there. But because of where I grew up, this one guy just gets me. And because it's where I grew up, there's people that I love and know that are caught up in this movement. And they're being deceived. Possibly deceived right into hell. He's a gainsayer. Across his campuses in the Atlanta area, 45,000 people attend that church. That's over half a rapid. He's a gainsayer. He speaks against the Word of God. He's an unruly person. He's proven himself disobedient to correction. He's a vain talker and that his words profit nothing. And I know for a fact he's subverting whole houses. He's most definitely teaching things he ought not. According to Paul, his mouth ought to be stopped. And since there were times Paul called people out, I'm going to do so tonight. The description is, the, is Pastor Andy Stanley. If you got his books, Charles Stanley's son, you need to get rid of him. You need to get that guy out of your library, out of your house, out of your buds, everything. I'm being a pastor tonight and I'm warning you of the sheep that are, the wolves that are out there in sheep's clothing. And I hardly ever do this, so just give me a pass. It's the new year. He makes moronic statements. He makes statements like this in his departure from scriptures. Quote, for the first 350 years of Christianity, no preacher or teacher said, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. 
There was no such thing as the Bible. Obviously, there was Scripture, but they did not, especially in the first century, build the Christian faith on the back of a text. Nobody could read. Nobody owned one. What drove the first century Christians was an event, end quote. And he's talking about the resurrection. First of all, how dumb is it to make a blanket statement that nobody could read in the first century? If no one could read, then how is the New Testament even recorded? You talk about moved by the Holy Spirit. What are you doing? I don't know. I'm just putting letters together. Right? <laughs> if no one could read, then why would Jesus ask the Pharisees repeatedly, have ye not read? If no one could read, then how was Jesus able to stand up and read the Scriptures in the synagogue? If no one could read, then how did all the people read the title above Jesus' head while He was on the cross? And by the way, that was written in three different languages. If no one could read, then how was the Ethiopian man reading the prophet Isaiah while riding in the chariot? Why would Paul say the Scriptures were read in the synagogues every Sabbath day? How were the epistles read in the churches? How did the Bereans search the Scriptures daily? Did I tell you, it just, this, this, one, this one thing just gets under my skin. And, and listen, to say that no preacher ever said back then, the Bible says. Then what in the world was Peter doing in this message when he said in verse 16, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Duh! You know what Peter's saying? This is what the Bible says in Joel. What was Peter saying in verse 25 when he said, For David speaketh concerning him? What was Peter saying in verse 31 when he was saying uh, of David, Seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ? What was Peter saying in verse 34 when he was saying of David, Saith himself? Good night. That's four examples right here in chapter (laughs) 2. Listen, if I was the Dallas Theological Seminary, I'd be asking for my master's degree back. Be like, here's your money. To say no preacher said the Bible says, then why does the New Testament say 31 times as it is written? Referring to the Old Testament. Why did John, Paul, and James all use the phrase, the Scripture saith? Do you know what it means when they say the Scripture saith? Do you know what they're saying? The Bible says. Nobody ever said that back then. He goes on to make moronic statements like the Bible did not create Christianity. Christians created the Bible. What? Then why does the New Testament frequently mention what was fulfilled from the Old Testament? Why did Jesus say in John 5.39, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of Me. Don't tell me the Word of God wasn't a part of it. Why was Paul's manner to go to the synagogue and reason with them out of the Scriptures? Let me give you another idiotic statement. Quote, The time has come for us to step back onto a more sure footing, and I think a firmer foundation, and to build our case for our congregations and for this generation on the event of the resurrection and not the authenticity or infallibility of the text. Okay, a more sure footing... Now I'm beginning to wonder, does this man ever study the Bible? Because you know what, do you know what Peter said, who apparently couldn't even read? 
Peter said, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Well, we need to step back on a more sure foundation. Peter said, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Wherein do you do well to take heed? And so how could any so-called pastor ever suggest the Bible in of itself is inadequate when David wrote in Psalm 138 and verse 2, For thou hast magnified thy word above thy name. I'm, trying to, I'm just trying to preach to you tonight the, the importance of the Word of God. I don't know how this kind of stupidity goes unchecked except that you build a church full of lost people or you get a bunch of people that will never read their Bible. I, I just need to say these things tonight, okay? I, I already told you I was going to be a bit cantankerous tonight. And then you get a pastor who refuses to preach verse by verse. And then you can say whatever you want the Bible to say. Because you can take verses completely out of context. And you can put them on the screen next to you while you're... And, and never have a Bible open up here. And you can just make it say whatever you want to say. And, and, and on this note, let me give you one last lame-brained quote here. And, I, and I'm going to try to move on. The, this excerpt was taken from an article posted on g3min.org on May 31st, 2016 entitled, Andy, Andy Stanley's Problem with the Bible, written by Josh Buse. Quote, Andy Stanley is not an expository preacher. In an, in an interview with Ed Stetzer in 2009 regarding his book titled, Communicating for a Change, Stetzer asked Stanley about preaching. The question was, what do you think about preaching verse-by-verse -verse messages through books of the Bible? Andy Stanley re responded, guys that preach verse-by-verse -verse through books of the Bible... That's just cheating. It's, it, it's cheating because that would be easy, first of all. That isn't how you grow people. No one in the Scripture modeled that. There's no one example of that, end quote. It's quite clear that Stanley isn't a fan of verse-by-verse -verse preaching. But what does that communicate regarding his overall approach to the Bible, end quote, on the article? I can assure you verse by verse is not cheating. You say, well, that's what you do. I, I know, and it's very laborious. It'd be a lot easier for me just to get up here and rail on people like this. I mean, this sermon came together like that, amen. I, I got in the flesh, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I think it's important for you to understand um, because I think sometimes we, we grow up in good churches some of you have been here for 20, 30, 40 years. I don't know if you're aware of what's going on out there. This is not unique to this church. Um, this is going on all over, all over the place because these men are going around giving seminars on how you can have the same kind of church. And, and you've heard me say before, we're, we're a dying breed, and I mean that. Uh, there, there's churches that are not even standing on the Word of God. Anyway, it's not cheating to go verse by verse. Um, in fact, if you think it is, I challenge you to pick any book of the Bible you want and then come up here and give a verse-by-verse -verse presentation. I got some preachers I really like, and it's funny because they'll, they'll cover three chapters in one night. And I'm like, man, I need to learn how to do that, you know. Um, and, and they're really good at doing it. I'm not making fun. But I personally believe verse-by-verse -verse is the best way to feed a flock. Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. And uh, I think when you go verse by verse, you have to address some of the things that you don't want to address. 
There's a reason we haven't done a verse by verse through Ezekiel. I feel a little bit better with that off my chest tonight. Um, Let's get back to the original point here. Peter, he's preaching by using the Word of God. Why? Because that's the best authority we have. We have to stand firm on the Word of God in our witnessing, in our preaching, and our teaching. It's not about our opinions. It's about what God said. And, and what I've yet to wrap my head around, I'm sorry, I said I was going to let it go, and I can't, I'm telling you, this is going to really just be hard. How are we going to build our faith around the event of the resurrection without using the Scriptures? Everything we know about Christ is because of the Bible. I, I mean, it just is so moronic. All right, back to what I'm trying to say here. We, we have to stand on the Word of God. The lost don't need our opinions, they need a Word of God. 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, how? By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now, as I mentioned in a previous message, these Peter here, these 11, all those present, they, they didn't have, you, you know, they didn't have the luxury of this, right? They weren't just walking around and saying, well, well, let me, hold on, I'll show, you, I'll show you what's happening today. You know, Joel said over here, they didn't have scrolls, they didn't have that kind of thing. So they weren't turning to passages showing them what was taking place. But Peter here, he's empowered by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost has come upon them. He's able to recall or call up these passages and use them in defense of the gospel on the fly. And it's really a rebuke for us to really learn the Word of God. But he's empowered here. And so in verses 25 through 28, Peter, he begins to explain how the Scriptures foretold of how it was impossible for Christ to be holden of death. It was impossible for Him to remain in the grave. And He does this by citing the Word of God. He cites Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, which read this. And you'll, if you follow along in Acts, it's, it's very close. I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad. And my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Peter, in talking about the resurrection of Jesus and why the resurrection occurred, why it was factual and true, and why it it proved obviously that Christ that Jesus was the Christ, that He was the Messiah, He makes the case that it's a fulfillment of Scriptures. And He does so by citing Psalm 16. The the Holy One that we read about here is Jesus Christ. He's called the Holy One of Israel in the Old Testament. You'll see that a lot in Isaiah, but in several of the Old Testament books. uh, you'll, You'll hear that phrase, the Holy One of Israel. For example, Isaiah 41, 14 Uh, God says, I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And then in Acts chapter 3, we'll see in verse 14 there, when we get there, Peter will call Jesus the Holy One. And so there's no question that who David was referring to back there in Psalm 16, who Peter is quoting, is referring to Jesus because Jesus is God's Holy One. Now, I personally do not believe 
that some people teach when Jesus died that he literally went to the fiery part of hell, that he was burned with fire. Some people believe that, and in our stripes, some people believe that because of the Passover in Exodus 12. It was roast with fire. And whatever wasn't eaten by morning, it had to be completely burned by fire. And so there are some people that have that position. I just can't get on board with that. Uh, There are several places where it's the same Hebrew word translated as both hell and the grave. And context is everything. The fact is, the word hell is often used in reference to the place of the dead without talking about the place of the damned, which is the fiery part of hell. Um, and, and so I think this verse here, I think it explains in of itself how it wasn't hell fire. It says, Thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Jesus didn't see corruption. Now, there's two ways to view that. You can either view that as He did not see corruption in that He was not in the grave long enough to be as Lazarus was when uh, Martha or Mary one said, Lord, by now He stinketh. Because he'd been dead four days. Jesus was only in the grave uh, three. And so <clears throat> that could be what is actually meant here. But uh, I think there's also room to consider that he didn't see corruption in hell fire because that's reserved for the damned. That's reserved for those who are lost. And I, I think that's a possi- possible way to look at that. But not to mention, and, and one of the most compelling things to me, is that when Jesus was on the cross... When he, right before he gave up the ghost, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. I mean, he commended his spirit to, to the Father. And, and now I'll entertain the possibility that when, when Christ did go into the grave, that he did go down to the lower parts of the earth to go into what was then called Abraham's bosom and lead captivity captive. See also Ephesians 4 8 and 9. I think it is, and, and where it says he descended, and that could just be he descended from heaven. It could be he descended into the, the ground uh, there beyond just going into the grave. But anyway, I don't think it means he went to be burned with fire in hell as some believe. Now, you can talk to me about that afterwards, and I'll be fine with that, but I'm going to give you further proof of why here in just a second. Uh, to further use Psalm 16 as Peter's justification for saying that Jesus could not be holden of death, he says in verse 29, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Uh, Peter is letting them know that David was not writing Psalm 16 of himself. And that was that could have been a popular thing people thought a lot because when you consider the Ethiopian eunuch riding in the chariot reading Isaiah, he asked, is he speaking of the prophet or of some other man? And David here is saying that David was not speaking of himself, but he was speaking of the Messiah. He was speaking of Christ. And, and he says, we, we know where David's sepulcher is. We know he's dead. We know that his body is lying in the sepulcher. And when you think about it, verse 29 is further reasoning for not believing that Jesus went into hell to be burned because Peter explains what is meant by being left in hell and seeing corruption when he relates it back 
to King David. Peter says this can't be about the patriarch David because David was left in hell, or the grave is what it means, because we know it can't mean hellfire. David did not go to hell. He was a man after God's own heart. And, and Peter is saying David did see corruption, which means that David did stay in the grave. His body did decompose. He did see corruption. And so I think that further explains that. And uh, Did I just say a bunch of stuff nobody's ever heard? Has anybody ever heard that position before? All right, two of us got that. Amen. Uh, the rest of you forget that you even ever heard it. I read it in a book, and I was just surprised that it was a position being held. Um, so I, th- I guess everybody else has never even heard of it. Amen. I'm glad I wasted all that time studying something that was of absolutely no value. And, and then in verse 30, Peter explains how David was a prophet and knew that there would be one raised up to sit upon his throne. Peter says, God swore to David that this was with an oath, that this was going to take place. We call this the, the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, and verse 16, they say this, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, speaking of David, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And thine house and thine kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. And then Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. Selah. So because of this covenant, listen now, this is the point. Because of this covenant that God made with David, it was not possible for Jesus to stay in the grave. He was, it was not possible for him to be holden of death. He had to rise again in order to sit upon the throne. And he had to rise again in order for the word of God to be true. And in verse 31, uh, David, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. And so Peter reiterates again in verse 32, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof you, you're all witnesses. We're all witnesses. We saw this. And then in verse 33, Peter brings it back to the original inquiry when they were saying, what meaneth this? What's going on? How are you guys speaking in, this, in these languages? Peter's now starting to bring this back by saying, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, He, Jesus, hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. And so Peter's letting them know that What you are witnessing is the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. I've already told you, Joel said it was coming. And and now I'm telling you, because Jesus couldn't stay in the grave, and now that He's exalted and He's by the right hand of God, the promises He made to us are coming to pass. He's pouring out His Spirit upon us. And that's why you can look at us Galileans that are unlearned in your sight, and you can look at us and marvel, why are we able to speak to you in your native tongue? Why? Because Jesus is alive. Because Jesus has risen again. Because He's at the right hand of the Father. And because of that, He's now given us the Holy Ghost. And so Peter's letting them know that all of this is happening because Jesus is the Christ. And in verses 34 and 35, Peter yet again references more Bible. Amen. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, 
The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Peter here is quoting Psalm 110 in verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And the spelling here is extremely important for you Bible students. As you go through your Old Testament, this is another reason it's important to have a King James Bible because you'll find that the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord in all caps, said unto my Lord, capital L, small O-R-D, I don't know why modern versions have done away with that, but they have. But in in Psalm 110 and in Acts 2, we see two spellings of the word Lord. One is with all caps and one is with capital L, small O-R-D. What does this mean? It means that the Lord, all caps, Jehovah, the Lord Jehovah said unto the Lord Adonai, or we could say it this way, God said unto Christ, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. This is very important how all this is, is spelled and lettered. And finally, in verse 36, Peter ties it all together by saying, by the way, I could say a lot on that point I just gave you. We could do a whole series on that. Um, but when you're reading your Old Testament and you see capital L, small O-R-D, look for Christ. Okay, just make that a practice. Um, and finally, in verse 36, Peter ties it all together by saying, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. In other words, Jesus is the Lord David was referring to in Psalm 110. He is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Peter says, this is who y'all crucified. You crucified the one that the Old Testament said was going to arrive. You missed it. By the way, the disciples missed him. Peter said, that's who you crucified. Can you imagine? We know some of them were cut to the heart. We'll see that next time. See that beginning in verse 37. But Peter said, this is the the man. It's because of this same Jesus. This same Jesus resurrected. The one that Joel, or the day that Joel spoke about, it's here. The one that David said would come, he has, he has come and he's, he's risen and He's ascended. And because of this, we are now speaking to you this day in these other languages. Now, I, I kind of quickly went through those set of verses. <laughs> because what I really want us to get from this tonight is a church in action is a church that uses the Word of God as their authority. We don't waver on the Word. We don't apologize for the Word. We don't water down the Word. We're to be people of the Word. Peter references Joel chapter 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110. He talks about the Davidic covenant. All in those verses. And this simple message he gave, it's laced with the Word of God. The church in action will preach, thus saith the Lord. Andy Stanley told his followers, if you are like me, many of you were brought up to believe, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. 
And this is where our trouble began. End quote. I'm here to tell you the Bible tells us so is the firmest foundation we have. The firmest foundation we have in this world of shifting sand is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. Listen to me, it's the Word of God. Did you read it today? Do you read it every day? Did you read it last year every day? The amens peter off the more we get further into this. You know why? Because we say out loud we love the Word of God, but in practice, do we really? We spend more time on the games. We spend more time in front of the television, on our phones, reading books, whatever your hobby is, amen? Say, what's your hobby? Mine's just sitting there staring. (laughs) Do we really love this Word? Use it in preaching. Use it in teaching. Use it to lead others to Christ. Use it as the basis of your faith. Use it as the authority in your life. And search it daily. Don't ever budge on the Word of God. Don't ever shy away from the Word of God. You let them mock you. You let them ridicule you. You let them call you names all they want. But the Word of the Lord endureth forever. Psalm 119, 7-11, we sing it sometimes on Sunday night. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the the eye. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never fail. Amen. His word will never pass away. And how dare somebody get up in a pulpit and try to tell their people not to stand upon the word of God. We need to be a people of the book. We need to know it. We need to read it. We need to meditate on it. We need to study it. We need to hide it in our heart that we might not sin against God. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to thy word. Listen, we don't get in it enough. We wonder why we battle sin, why we can't get victory, why all, all this stuff's happening is because we're not in the word of God. The word of God cleanses us, the Bible says. It washes us. It, it, it makes us whole. It, listen, I've already read it tonight, but we are born again by the word of God. How could we not want to be in it? Peter gets up and he he says, I know what's happening. I I read it. I read in Psalm 16 that he would not stay dead. I read in, in Psalm 110 that God said unto Christ, sit on my right hand. Listen, our world's falling apart and people are looking for answers. We have it. It's right here. And, and, and when we can look at this world and those of us that are grounded and rooted in the Word of God, we can say, look, I know it's getting bad, but I, I can turn to the Word of God and I can tell you, this is why. This is, what it, this is what it said would come to pass. Listen, the Bible's not where our troubles begin, but it's where our troubles end. Would you pray with me?